listener production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, things are about to get very interesting. New York-based Augustin Fu is an international authority on ad fraud, which he thinks is woefully underestimated. Fu calculates that at best 6% of digital marketing budgets are seen by the target audience, i.e. humans, with 70% lost to fraud or ad fraud as we know it. Fu has worked in digital marketing for 25 years, a client side for American Express and agency side at both Omnicom and McCann. He started his career in New York City with McKinsey & Co. Today, Fu makes a living helping marketers audit their digital campaigns for ad fraud based on his own proprietary analytics engine. He has described ad fraud as the ultimate white-collar crime you can do from home, with tutorials on YouTube enabling scammers to set up in minutes and virtually no chance of getting caught. And apparently it's not even a crime, right, Augustine? We'll get to that in a minute. Foo says that ad fraud is now so prevalent that even law firms have cottoned on to the easy money to be made fleecing ad tech firms by concocting class action suits against false clicks and bot accounts and hoping they will pay to settle. And yet marketers don't seem to care. Their appetite for cheap digital ads seemingly overriding their desire to market to humans. Or do they? Last week, the US peak advertising industry body, the ANA, issued an RFP for another dive into supply chain transparency, five years after its first investigation ended with a lot of recrimination, but little action. So, Augustine, after this epic setup, uh, some big questions for you. Uh, there will be a lot of people in the Australian market listening to this who will question your 70% fraud claims. Forget the dollar figure. How do you get to that number, which is the highest figure I think I've seen anywhere. It's massive. So how do we convince the Australian market that this is real and it is as big as it is? And welcome from New York. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Good to be with you. They might actually question my sanity as well. Yes, but right. uh, that's a whole other issue. Um, basically, the 70% number seems pretty high. I mean, if I say 100%, it'll seem even higher. But the point is, there are well-run digital campaigns and there are very poorly run digital campaigns. And if you use some common sense to think about how many humans there are on Earth and how much time they're able to spend online, right? Whether going to websites or watching video, you know, a lot of humans are spending time on mobile devices these days, right? Using apps and things like that. But if you take all of the humans that are on Earth and you take all of the time that they could possibly spend online. I think here in the U.S., Nielsen estimates on average like eight hours or something out of the day. What else are they doing? You know, are they working and surfing the web at the same time? Right. So they're, they're starting to use concepts like parallel consumption where they're watching TV, surfing the Internet, and using mobile apps all at the same time to try to justify these numbers. So long story short, I think any number that's extrapolated to the whole marketplace is not going to be terribly accurate. So the point is that marketers, more marketers, need to look into their own campaigns to see what's going on. And from my experience and from my research, typically the larger the marketer, uh, the more subject to fraud they are. 
and that's for a variety of reasons, but a couple of the leading reasons is that they've handed off their millions of dollars of digital ad budgets to media agencies whose job is to spend it all, right? Because they have to spend it in order for the agency to make money. So they're really not interested in looking at the fraud. They'd much rather have lots and lots of impressions to buy so they can spend all the money. And because they're looking for larger and larger quantities at lower and lower prices, it inevitably leads them into the programmatic long tail, right? So digital ad fraud wasn't rampant in the good old days of digital marketing when marketers went to publishers and bought ads from them, right? So you would go to a New York Times. I'm just going to use U.S. examples, right? But you go to a mainstream publisher and you buy ads from them and they'll place it on their site for you. Right. But when programmatic came along, right, so when that started taking off in 2012, 2013, the fraud also skyrocketed. And that's because for the first time, we really separated the buyers of the ads from the sellers of the ads. Right. We separated the advertisers from the publishers and we inserted ad exchanges in the middle. So now instead of marketers going to large publishers that people have heard of to buy ads from them, they're simply allocating a chunk of dollars to an exchange and say, go buy ads for us, right? There's going to be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of sites that belong to that exchange. So pretty much the marketer is not inspecting any of those sites. So it's created the opportunity for fake sites or fraudulent sites to now start selling inventory to the largest marketers on earth, right? And so it became easy for the bad guys to also scale their fraud, right? They can create fake websites, add it into exchanges by the thousands, right? Not, we're not talking one or two, we're talking thousands and thousands. And then those uh, fake inventory, right? The fake ad impressions is just commingled with some real one, real inventory and all of it's bundled and sold to the marketers. Right. And so the marketers seem to like it a lot because they're getting far more quantity than they could ever get from real publisher sites. Because remember, there's finite humans right, that spend a finite amount of time online. So all of a sudden, you have super large quantities, much lower prices. And by the way, if you take into consideration that bots are the ones loading the ads, not humans, the bots can be easily programmed to click on stuff. Right, so now your average click-through rate also goes up, so it appears to be performing better. So it's almost like a perfect trifecta of uh, things that marketers want, right? Large quantities, low prices, and high performance. But what if it's not from real humans, right? Obviously, it's not from real humans, but the marketers love those three things, and that's why they're so addicted to it. They will ignore everything else that's been telling them that it's fraud, and they would choose to buy it anyway. This is crazy stuff. So what what happens with these numbers? When you throw these numbers around to your customer base and to large brands and you, you put this to them, how do marketers respond? How do brand owners respond? I actually don't. And I don't say a number. I give them a range because I've seen campaigns that are 1% fraud and I've seen campaigns that are 100% fraud, right? It totally depends on how vigilant the marketer is. You can't rely on the media agency to be that vigilant for you because it's not their job, right? Their job is to make all the money they can, right? So in this case, as long as the marketer is the one that's paying attention, 
being vigilant and having the analytics in place to monitor it, uh, it's going to be on the lower end of that range, right, closer to 1%. We're up against seasoned hackers, seasoned criminals, right? So the bots that they use to commit this kind of crime are not going to be just generic uh, bots, right? They're going to be more advanced that can get by the detection. And I'm always assuming that they get by my detection. So there should be never a scenario where I, sh I can see 0% fraud, right? If that's the case, then I think my measurement's missing something. But still, the, the quantum of what you're talking about here, when you put the risk, the potential risk to brand owners, do you, you, you don't, do you get drop jaw? I guess, do jaws drop or is it sort of numb and goes over the top of their heads? I'm just trying to understand when someone... Yeah, most, for the most part, literally for the last eight years, most brands have ignored it. One of the reasons for that is that the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, have repeatedly told them that fraud is low, don't worry about it. Right. So even though they have all these fraud detection initiatives, they put out annual reports talking about fraud rates and things like that. Um, they have an, an organization called Trustworthy Accountability Group, TAG, that puts out reports that claim that their methodology, their certifications have solved fraud. So for the last three years, they've been putting out uh, reports that say fraud is less than one percent. Right. In fact, I believe last one was 0.56 percent. So when big advertisers see that, what do you think they're going to think, right? They're going to say, oh, well, that's cool. Well, they said it's low and we want to buy it anyway. So it just gives them a convenient excuse to keep buying it. So for the most part, the largest marketers have chosen to ignore uh, the obvious, right? The amount of fraud, right? It's not necessarily 70%. It's not necessarily 100 billion. It's just a large number or larger than they currently think it is. And they're refusing to take action to look into it more carefully, and that's the problem. Well, and this is exactly where I was going to next, Augustine, is that, you know, where the, whether it be the IAB, large swathes of the digital industry, and, and even verification firms uh, are sort of talking anywhere between, you know, you say 1%, I see sort of 2 to 10%, but that is, a, that is a significant gap to what you're talking about. What is going on even with the verification firms and their methodology that doesn't get to the numbers, that, that sort of the, the, the high numbers that you're talking about? There's two things. One is you've got to consider their long-term motivations, okay? Fraud detection tech companies, these ad tech vendors, rely on fraud to continue so that they can keep making money. Because there's activity in the system. Yeah, so that they can continue selling their services, right? And they're venture-funded, and the largest ones here in the U.S. Are, are owned by private equity, and one of them just went public, okay? So they're not incentivized to actually solve the fraud. In fact, the way most marketers buy those services is for CYA, cover your ass, <laughs> right. right? They're not buying it for the accuracy of detection. They're buying it so that they can say, oh, well, this ad tech company told us it was fine, so therefore we kept buying, right? So when their boss is asked, when the CFO or the CEO asks about, oh, well, we hear that fraud is much higher than 1%, um, they can then blame someone else and say the fraud detection company that we were using told us it was 1%, so we kept buying. Okay, now getting to the reason why they're only detecting 1%, it's because they're primarily looking for IVT, right? So everyone uses this acronym, IVT, which means invalid traffic, to mean bots, right? What they're doing is those technologies grew up and were tuned for looking for bots, IVT, bots coming to the tra uh, invalid traffic coming to web pages. But over time, as you know, we've evolved into mobile marketing, right? So there's many uh, 
uh, sites or apps that are in the mobile space that are running programmatic ads as well. And then we're also moving into CTV, connected TV, right? So in those environments, the measurement is less able or less capable to catch the fraud. And in fact, most of those measurements are not tuned for such environments. So for example, if you have a flashlight app or a keyboard app uh, that's loading ads in the background, that's not technically bots hitting a web page. So those technologies that are tuned for looking for bots hitting a web page may not see those, right? So they're undercounting, they're underestimating those forms of fraud. The other thing that's happening is that the sites themselves can be cheating, right? So if you have a fraudster that has set up fake websites or predominantly fraudulent websites, they can both buy traffic to it, right? To inflate the amount of ads that they can sell so that they can make more money or they can do other shady things on the site itself, like ad stacking, right? So why just have one ad in the ad slot? Why not have 100 stacked on top of each other so that 99 additional ones are you know, generating volume for you, even though only the top one can be seen? So ad stacking, pixel stuffing, pop-ups, pop-unders, all of those things are done by the site. Those may or may not be caught by the current crop of fraud detection tech companies. Right, so in that case, they're underestimating all of the fraud that's going on, right? If they're tuned for looking for IVT, which is invalid traffic to the site. Well, so you talk about the ANA underestimating the number, but uh, a few years back, the World Federation of Advertisers, which is probably the you know the peak global body for for advertisers, uh, had a, had a report out that predicted ad fraud would be the second biggest revenue earner for criminal syndicates behind uh, the illicit drug trade. And I think, you know, I've seen numbers somewhere sort of around 20, 25 billion perhaps uh, in by 2025. If that's the case, one, how is that not a major governance issue? And, and secondly, why is there a discrepancy between what the World Federation of Advertisers says and what the American National Advertisers say? How, how, what's going on there? Well, WFA actually knows what they're talking about, ANA doesn't. That's a whole other issue. So, right. but, but the WFA, when they're looking at global advertisers, I would tend to say that um, global advertisers are a lot more vigilant than the American ones. And I think part of that is due to ANA constantly telling them fraud is not a problem, right? And even publishing reports that say fraud is 0.56% through tech. So in that case, um, you know, again, I'm not going to speak to the exact number because I can't vouch for the accuracy of the overall number, right? There's big ranges. But the WFA's point about it being the most lucrative form of crime outside of, you know, illicit drugs and and that kind of stuff, um, common sense can kind of tell you that that makes sense because when you're dealing with illicit drugs, you actually have to move product. Right. So you literally right, everyone's seen enough of those movies and TV shows where they literally have to move the cocaine from one place or another. But in digital ad fraud, it can be done from the comfort of your own gaming chair at home because it's all digital bits and bytes. So you have no physical product to move. It's all bits and bytes. And most of those fake websites never produce their own content. Right. They either plagiarize it all. Uh, so remember the piracy sites where pirated videos and music and things like that to attract a human audience. They don't charge the audience, right? So how do they make money? They make it through digital advertising, right? So you can't really see the ads on the page, but they're just running a lot of ads and getting paid for it. So that covers the cost of the bandwidth for hosting all the pirated content, right? And pretty much every other site uh, that's in those exchanges that's kind of fraudulent, they don't have to be hosting pirated music or movies. They just have to put up fake content. 
right, plagiarized from other places. And all they're doing is monetizing it through digital ads. And you've heard the um, problem of fake news and disinformation. That's the same problem because those sites now have a way of monetizing. So now they can make money and continue to expand their disinformation operations. Whereas before they'd had to fund it out of their own pockets, right? So now we're starting to see it translate, right? Ad fraud translate into real world harm or harm to society. Because if you have these fake news sites and disinformation sites making money hand over fist from ad fraud, they're able to expand further disinformation operations. Right? And so think of that in relation to coronavirus disinformation. So these sites are spewing content that says uh, the coronavirus is fake, you know, it's made up by Democrats in the U.S. or something, or you don't need to wear masks, um, you know, the vaccines are you know, not real, all that kind of stuff. You can imagine how that's going to cause a lot of people to doubt uh, you know, the vaccines and doubt the doctors and therefore not wear masks. So that could actually lead to real world loss of life as well. Well, wow. so if we go back to the WFA prediction or forecast on, on ad fraud and the crims, um, I guess the question here is how is this not a major governance issue for, for, for companies, certainly listed companies, but, you know, brands full stop. How is it not a major governance issue? It is. It should be. They're not on top of it right now. And as soon as activist investors get involved, they're going to be on top of it very quickly. Do you see signals of that? Yes, it's, it's happening. The pandemic caused everyone to take a closer look, right? So in 2020, some of the largest marketers finally paused some of their digital ad spending. So, you know, this echoes years and years ago when P&G turned off $200 million of their digital spend. So it's 10% of their $2 billion in digital. Uh, when they turned off $200 million, they saw no change in business outcomes. And then similarly, Chase, a uh, large yes, bank here, uh, they reduced their programmatic reach from 400,000 websites showing their ads to just 5,000 websites showing their ads. That's a 99% decrease in the number of sites showing their ads. And they saw no change in business outcomes. And then two more examples. One is Uber. Uh, they basically saved themselves 120 million dollars out of 150 million they were spending in app install campaigns so basically they were paying mobile exchanges to help them get more app installs but as it turns out the 100 mobile exchanges were feasting on their dollars fraudulently because they were claiming credit for app installs that had already happened right so if you think about it humans install the uber app because they wanted to that's called organic installs Right, not because they saw an ad and clicked on it. However, the mobile exchanges were falsifying the place reports. Right, They were tricking the analytics to make it appear that they caused the app install so they could get paid the CPI, the cost per install bounty that Uber paid out. Right, So even in performance marketing, the fraudsters were tricking the marketers by manipulating the analytics and the attribution reports to make it appear that they caused those insults. Did, did Uber take any action? Uh, sorry, there was one more. I think you're going to give one more example before we get to that. Yeah, and the, the Airbnb one, they turned off $800 million in spend, obviously because people were not traveling and staying and that kind of stuff. So in 2020, they, they turned off $800 million, And in their last earnings call, the CEO said, 95% of the traffic levels they saw in 2019 were still there on Airbnb. So they, 
his determination was that they don't need to spend that much in marketing, advertising, and digital performance media uh, going forward, right? They're going to spend a fraction of that because, you know, they can tune uh, the spending. So it's consistent with what I've said before, which is marketers are way, way overspending in digital, right? Thinking that it's working, but like in the Uber case, a lot of those sales were not caused by the digital marketing, right? They would have happened anyway. But it's very convenient for them, you know, because of the reporting, to think that, oh, we're getting all this activity, we're getting all these clicks in digital, that it must be causing some of those sales, right? But they haven't taken into account that the fact that the clicks are coming from bots as well. So it might look like great performance, but it's not actually cause and effect. So what did a company like Uber do where it discovered that it may have been gamed by by some some operatives? Did they do anything? Did they take any action? Yeah, finally they sued, right? So in 2017 or so, they sued their agency um, and the agency pushed back and sued them back and said, well, you told us to keep spending to to keep spending right you you told us to keep buying those things even though we repeatedly told you they were fraudulent and so uber ultimately uh dismissed that lawsuit and then refiled it against the hundred mobile exchanges and note this only five of the exchanges could be identified by name 95 of them were john does they didn't even know who uh who was feasting on their dollars right but the bottom line is now we're in 2021 even if Uber wins that lawsuit, you know, one year, two years, three years from now, most of those mobile exchanges have gone away, right? They took the money and left. They don't exist anymore. So there's no way for Uber to get the money back. That's the larger uh, lawsuit that's going on. There's a smaller lawsuit that came to fruition earlier this year, and this is where they were suing Funware, P-H-U-N, uh, is their stock symbol. So it's a public company. And through a whistleblower employee, they were able to find that Funware was literally fabricating all the uh, reports, right? All the placement reports. They weren't even just falsifying ones. They were literally making it up. So there was an employee email uh, where they were saying, okay, it's time to spit up more BS to Uber to keep the lights on. So literally they knew, right? Management of Funware knew that they were creating completely false uh, yeah, reports Right when they didn't even run the ads, they were simply uh, creating fake reports to send to Uber and invoice them for it. Right, so they didn't even run any ads. So those are regular practices amongst fraudsters. Right, why even generate the traffic if you can just generate the report or send the client the Excel spreadsheet that says there was this much traffic? The clients are not even going to ask, so they just pay the invoices anyway. So the fraud in digital is so convenient, is so easy. Do you think it's going to be less than the drug trade or more than the drug trade, right? Even script kiddies, which are junior programmers, can get in on this and start generating bot traffic to make money through advertising. Well, I was about to ask you, who are these bad guys, these criminal syndicates or the bad guys, as you call them, who are they? It could be everyone. And let me explain why I say that, right? So people tend to think, oh, it's these shadowy hackers that are very skilled at generating botnets and all that. Yes, they're involved. But think of uh, the large, large botnets that have existed for a very long time, right? They were previously used for DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service attacks, where they would overwhelm sites with so much traffic that it would take them down. But that's not lucrative, right? What do you do with that, right, other than extortion or whatever? But now if they take that traffic fire hose 
and point it to websites that pay them for the traffic, right, or websites that have uh, ad tech code on them. They can generate enormous amounts of ad revenue, right, so it's a much, much more lucrative use of those giant botnets. So now there's a handful of hackers that maintain giant botnets, and they're essentially renting time on those botnets. And the reason I, I call it that is basically there are traffic resellers that help them sell or rent time on those botnets because they'll say, okay, here's a website. They don't have any humans going there or they don't have enough humans going there. So in order, to, or in order for them to make more money, they need more traffic. So then they conveniently go to this traffic seller and say, oh, we need 10 million page views on our website, right? You can't force a whole bunch of humans to go to a particular website when you tell them to. But it's basically one command line for a botnet. Go hit this website 10 million times because they just paid for it, right? So that's how traffic selling works. You're renting time on a vast botnet, and the bots will come to your page exactly the number of times you paid them to do so. Right, so in, in that way, uh, bot traffic is super reliable, right? So whereas some of the largest publishers are desperately waiting for humans to visit their site at the end of the month, right? So they may not even get enough humans on a month-by-month -month basis to come to their site. But the fake websites can consistently generate enormous amounts of ad impressions because they're just buying all the traffic, right? So there's also a euphemism that the ANA put out. It's called sourcing traffic. And so in years past, they put out documents that say, oh, sourcing traffic is not that bad and it can be done in safe ways and all that kind of stuff. But bottom line is, going back to the analogy, you can't force a whole bunch of humans to go to a particular site when you tell them to. But it's one line of code for botnets to do that. So the RFP that we talked earlier about uh, with the peak US advertiser body, the ANA, there's, there's that RFP that's out, have you responded to that, uh, Augustine, and, and what would you be telling or where would you be telling the ANA to look? I have written two articles on Forbes uh, about this, and I will not respond formally to the RFP because the ANA doesn't even know what questions to ask. They're asking the wrong questions, in fact, and let me tell you why. So... It's nice and quaint to think that they can capture all of the complexity and the hidden cost and hidden waste in the supply chain in a simple waterfall chart, right? The way they wrote the RFP is that we want to look at a dollar that comes from the advertiser and how much of that dollar ends up with the publisher and then from the publisher to the audience, right? So they actually broke it into two steps instead of one step now. But that fails to capture all the different forms of fraud and the hidden arbitrage and the other forms of waste. And let me just illustrate a few examples. How do you capture uh, the fact that an ad agency is keeping a portion of the unspent media dollars without telling the client? So there's a scenario that happens more often than marketers think. Uh, the media plan that they set up at the beginning of the year calls for 100 million impressions to be purchased through the year. I'm just using round numbers just to illustrate. Okay. But after the campaign actually runs, they only ended up buying 60 million impressions, right? So 60% of what they planned. The 40% that's unspent, where does that money go, right? The marketer doesn't actually want it back because it's terribly inconvenient for them to have that much unspent money. They'd have to go figure out how to spend it before the end of the year, right? So it's terribly, terribly inconvenient for the marketer. And the agency doesn't want to give that money back because it affects their profitability and their top line revenues, 
right? So what I've seen happen in the past is they conveniently alter the books so it makes it look like they spent the $10 million or, or bought the $100 million impressions. But in essence, the agency quietly keeps the unspent media dollars, right? And that helps them pad their bottom line profits, right? And that's been done at the agency holding company level. And that's very similar to what happened in the 2016 study that the ANA did, which exposed the non-transparent business practices of the agencies, basically giving kickbacks to themselves, giving kickbacks to other subsidiaries, but all within the same holding company. Many in this market, Augustine, would say that that practice was happening. Some would debate how widespread it was, but now they would argue that's kind of cleaned up somewhat. You're not buying that? (laughs) Do you buy that? Anyone with some common sense should not be buying that. You said something very key here. The extent is not known, right? So in that particular case, yes, people acknowledge that bad practice, that non-transparent practice is happening, but the, the true extent of it is not known. So the key theme in my response to the RFP, or meaning my lack of response to the RFP, is to say that in most of these cases, the problem is the extent is not known. Right, so I can itemize a hundred different things that are eating up the dollar what between the advertiser and the publisher, right, in the supply chain that goes between the, the buyer of the ad and the, and the seller of the ad. But you cannot easily summarize that into a waterfall chart because the problem is you don't know the extent of each of these uh, items or problems. Right. So we don't know the true extent of the, the problem of fraud. And, you know, as I said earlier in this podcast, uh, the amount of fraud impacts different advertisers and different campaigns differently. Right. Some campaigns have high fraud. Other campaigns have low fraud. So what number do you use for ad fraud as an average so that you can actually plot it on a simple waterfall chart? You can't. Right. And if you do, you're basically lying. Right, because that number is just an average, it's an approximation, it's extrapolated to the whole market, it is not accurate. So to say that you can summarize all the non-transparency or the murkiness of the supply chain in one waterfall chart means that they don't actually know what they're doing. So that's why I'm not going to formally respond to the RFP, and I've written the, the reasons behind it. I've given them many, many examples in the two Forbes articles that I wrote to say there are so many other things that really can't be accounted for in, simply in a waterfall chart. I'm fascinated by, even in the US, what, what the trade media and, and the business media, why this hasn't surfaced, and you've got plenty of fodder there by the sounds of why we're not getting traction. But before we get there, um, it's almost inconceivable that if it's this as big as you say it is, that this this big uh, issue is met with with such uh, apathy. Um, we did see in the UK last year the uh, PwC Isbar um, report, which I think you're across, which talked about this unknown delta. Um, I think it was, if I recall, twenty percent, perhaps, or thirty percent, fifteen percent, fifteen was it? Right. Let me spend a minute on that. That's very important. Okay, so they took an average and said, okay, we could not account for 15% of the media dollars uh, on average. And they were basically painstakingly tracing the ad dollars going from the advertiser to the publisher, right? The 15% number was the average, but the range was 0% to 86%. That means in one campaign, 86% of the dollars went missing. 
Okay, so in what other industry would you be okay with 86% of your dollars going missing or even 15% of your dollar? Because we're not talking about small dollars. We're talking about large dollars, right? And then the uh, bulk of the campaigns were in the 2 to 23% range went missing. Okay, now the went missing part is simply because of the hidden arbitrage and other things that could not simply be accounted for in that waterfall chart. So the ISBA uh, and PwC did its the best job it could, right? Given the data that they were given, uh, and they just estimated that. But the problem is, as you've seen happen since they published that report, what people are focused on is the 15%. So when everyone just quotes that, right? Like you just did, like I just did, everyone thinks the problem is only 15%, right? Whereas it's way, way larger than that. So that's what I mean by um, if you have to plot it in a waterfall chart, you're going to have to make assumptions and trade-offs, right? So in essence, you're publishing a number that's going to be misleading no matter what. What do you recommend marketers and brands do to at least have a crack at sort of unraveling this, this, this mess? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for the marketers um, for, that are running in programmatic, they need a lot more detailed information than they currently have, right? So if, you, if they're just getting month-end Excel spreadsheets from their media agencies, that's not good enough, right? Because if those are rounded numbers, uh, I like to say ad fraud hides easily in averages and totals, right? So remember the Uber case? They were getting some reports that say, okay, here's how many app installs you got, here's how many clicks you got, and things like that. So if they don't get any further details for example, uh, placement reports, which tell them where their ads ran, they won't even see any of these problems, right? So the first order of business is for them to get much, much more granular and detailed reports. Uh, for example, detailed placement reports and even hourly reports. Uh, there's a lot of suboptimal things, not just fraud, that they can see when they get such detailed reports. But the other thing, this is gonna take a little bit more courage on the part of the marketers, is to run turn off experiments. It's almost exactly like what Uber did. Kevin Frisch was the analytics uh, person there, and he ran a turn-off experiment. So he basically paused the mobile app install campaign budgets for a week, noticed that there was no change, and he left it off for another week, and noticed there was still no change. And then he basically left it off and noticed no change whatsoever. Right? So if the marketers run those experiments, they don't have to take my word for it. Right, because no matter what number I say, they're not going to believe me anyway. So don't believe me. Run your own experiments. Right. The only thing I hope they will take away from this is that they will take a closer look, get more detailed reports, and start to run some experiments, like turn off a portion of your media, and see if that impacts any business outcomes. Now, of course, it's going to impact vanity metrics. Right. You're not going to get the clicks. You're not going to get the quantity of impressions and that kind of stuff. But those are all vanity metrics that marketers have been addicted to, but doesn't really translate into business impact or business outcomes from their digital marketing. So if they did what Uber did or what P&G did or what Airbnb did, even with a small portion of their digital spending, right? not everyone can turn off 200 million, but they can turn off 200,000 and see if that makes a change. Right? If it doesn't, ask why, and then leave it off for another week, leave it off for another month. Right? That is the 
best way to determine whether the digital marketing that you're doing is having an effect for you, like in terms of business outcomes. And therefore, whether it was due to fraud or simply due to suboptimal digital marketing, the, those dollars spent didn't drive any incremental business for you anyway. So why keep spending it, right? There's a better way to deploy those dollars that, that are going to help you. Uh, get more business outcomes from it. So Augustine, you've said that for advertisers to really test this, they should turn off digital spend and see what happens to their business results. If they can't do or won't do that, what else is open to them? What else can they do? If they really can't pause their digital spending, because I know most marketers have to spend it all before the end of the year, um, I'm happy to offer to them the same offer I've put out there for years uh, to American marketers. And that is if they want to use my tag, right? So we have a tag from Foo Analytics, my platform, to do a no-cost pilot, right? So they can put their tag into one or more of their programmatic campaigns so that we can measure the ads, see where they go, and see whether bots or humans are causing the ads to load. It's a way for them to actually monitor it more closely, right? And see whether they're impacted by fraud, right? Because some marketers are buying very cleanly. They're very, very strict about their buying. So they're probably not affected by a lot of fraud. But others, if they really have no idea what their agency is doing for them, this will give them some more detailed data and analytics that they can look at. Well, I'm going to be fascinated to see if anyone takes you up on that. Have they in the US? Yeah, Q4 2020 saw a huge uptick in number of people asking me to audit. So I'm currently auditing a lot of campaigns, way, way more than the past eight years combined. Right. So something's going on. Let me put this to you. Performance marketing, which or performance advertising, which is essentially response-driven, looking for a response from someone, the performance uh, marketers uh, tend to use that cheaper inventory to drive some sort of uh, response from a user, from a consumer. And often that is a, a click or a download or a request, a, you know, a, a test drive, whatever it might be. If performance marketers are so in deep with fraud, why they keep doing it and they must be seeing some sort of response that is a real person. So how does this, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, so the performance marketers that have offline metrics to use, for example, did a person actually show up to do a test drive? Mm. Okay, those are fine because bots don't show up to do test drives, okay? Um, did a person actually go into a grocery store or something like that? Okay, but let me articulate why performance marketers should still not just assume that they are immune to fraud. Okay, so you know already that the clicks can be easily faked by the bots. But I've also written that the sales can be faked by the bots, not because they're actually buying something from you, but instead they're claiming credit for a sale that had already happened. Okay, so again, thinking back to the Uber example, these, those were organic installs. The human installed the Uber app because they wanted to the mobile exchanges, the fraudsters, were simply tricking the attribution to claim credit for, a, for an install that had already happened. So I've seen similar practices in affiliate and in remarketing, where they're doing cookie stuffing, right, to claim credit for a sale. Is that, is that what we'd call cookie bombing, Augustine? Yes. Uh, cookie bombing is just doing a lot of it. So very, very similar. But affiliate fraud has been a lo- uh, around even longer than programmatic fraud, right? So all of this is basically standard practice for the fraudsters. But even the uh, performance marketers that claim to have sales to look at, uh, what the fraudsters are doing 
uh, are basically claiming credit for sales that had already happened or would have happened anyway. What I've seen happen in the past is that the fraudsters are claiming credit for sales that have already happened. So let me illustrate that with a simple example. If a person goes to Macy's.com or has purchased from Macy's.com before, they're likely to go back and buy again. Okay. So say, for example, they typed in Macy's.com, looked at 20 page views, and then ended up buying something. Okay. So we call that a 20 page view direct visit because they typed in the, the website uh, and then they ended up buying something. So what the remarketing company does or the fraudster does is they insert a a page view, a false uh, page view at the beginning of that 20 page view visit to make it a 21 page view uh, visit that came from the remarketing vendor. So in essence, they're claiming credit for a sale that had already happened, right? So in the books, according to the reports that they give the marketer, it looks like, wow, we got so many sales. It's working five times better than any other uh, digital marketing. Uh, campaign that we're doing. So now I've actually seen where a marketer took their entire digital budget and handed it to this ad tech vendor because the reporting looks so dramatically better than every other form of uh, digital marketing. So I'm using that example to say, again, we don't know the extent to which this is happening, but we've seen that happen. So the point is performance marketers shouldn't just assume that they are immune to fraud because they're only paying when they get the sale. Well, it does open up a whole new conversation, which we can't go to on this session. We'll have to loop back around, but it is that pseudo currency thing called last click, t uh, last click attribution or last touch attribution. Right? That's another conversation itself. But I think that's where you, you're sort of touching on, on that, aren't you? Yeah. And I can just cite the historic examples. Do you remember in 2015, uh, Critio sued Steelhouse for outright click fraud and Steelhouse countersued Critio for outright click fraud. Okay. Both of them sued each other. And then strangely, after a month, both of them dropped their lawsuits. Okay, so think about that for a second. Basically, both of them were relying on last click attribution to claim credit for sales, right? So if Critio were the last click, they get credit for having driven that sale. If Steelhouse were the last click, they get credit. So basically, Steelhouse was saying, oh, it's so unfair. Critio is doing this click fraud because they're getting the last click attribution and getting credit, whereas it's supposed to be ours. Right, and Critio was suing Steelhouse for doing the same thing. Then they worked out that they were both in unsafe territory. <laughs> yes, they both settled because if we went to discovery, if the lawsuit pursued, if both of those suits proceeded, uh, their entire business model would have been outed. Augustin, you also think that, and this is you know, a hot topic globally at the moment, right, the death of third-party cookies. You think that third-party cookies could actually help counter ad fraud. Uh, give us a really quick top line view on that. And, and what do you make also of Apple's changes? Is that, are they a big deal? Is it a big deal? Uh, where do you think all that will settle? Okay. On the topic of third-party cookies, uh, the loss of third-party cookies will actually reduce certain forms of ad fraud. For example, bots like to pretend to be certain audiences by deliberately visiting certain websites to make themselves appear to be that audience. So let me use a specific example. If a bot deliberately visits a couple of medical journal sites, they start to appear to be a doctor in the eyes of the DMP, right, the data management provider, because all the ad tech companies are doing is they're observing the websites that they visit, users visit, and try to infer who they are and what they like. So by deliberately visiting a handful of websites, the bots can 
pretend to be a particular audience. So pharmaceutical companies would pay extra to target doctors, right? Because they think those users are doctors. So in that sense, by doing away with third-party cookies, that form of fraud is going to be more limited, or meaning it's going to be reduced. The loss of third-party cookies is not actually going to harm the effectiveness of marketers' campaigns because currently their campaigns based on those are not that effective anyway. So by doing away with third-party cookies, we're reducing the bot activity that's eating up their dollars. So inadvertently, we're going to help the marketers end up doing better digital marketing. Kind of counterintuitive, right? Same thing's going to happen with the Apple IDFA thing, right? So in the past, by not having this restriction, apps that were installed on iOS could basically harvest all these IDFAs, right? These device identifiers. And once they have done that, a form of fraud that is possible is that they're basically the fraudsters' apps and bots are replaying these real uh, device identifiers to pretend to be real iOS devices, right? So when they copy off the IDFA, they can now pretend to be that iPhone, okay, and start to commit fraud. With Apple's policy changes, which require apps to collect consent before they can harvest the IDFA, that means it's going to make it a lot harder for the bad guys to just harvest large numbers of IDFAs. However, it's not going to harm the consumer experience because if a consumer likes using Facebook and Instagram, when they are prompted to give permission to those apps to collect the IDFA, they're probably going to give consent because they know the app, they use it every day and things like that. Whereas if some rogue app or some SDK or some other ad tech company that they've never heard of asks for permission to collect the IDFA, they're probably not going to consent, right? So in that sense, uh, the Apple, uh, the privacy move by Apple is going to actually increase privacy for the consumers because it cuts off the wanton data collection being done by rogue apps, right? But it's not necessarily going to harm the uh, mainstream apps that consumers know and use regularly. Wow. Okay. We, we, we are um, sort of hurtling along here in all sorts of paths. There's, there's another area which is about to send some heads spinning. Uh, you've been pretty vocal about dark pooling and what, you, what you've described as, as uh, willful ignorance from industry bodies like the IAB around exploitation of its ads.txt standard, um, which is supposed to counter ad fraud. But you think this is actually enabling it. In, in layman's terms, explain all that to us. What the hell are dark pools uh, and w- what's going on at the IAB? So ads.txt is a protocol, right? It's a standard that IAB created for the purpose of reducing uh, what is known as domain spoofing. So one domain pretending to be something else, right? So a fake site is going to pretend to be someone else. And the purpose of ads.txt is to get the publishers to say, these are the only exchanges that are authorized to sell our inventory. It starts to cut out some of the supply paths that are not authorized to sell their inventory. But what's happened, and uh, I and many other researchers have documented over documented this over the years, is that the bad guys are simply lying, right? Because obviously bad guys lie. So in the ads.txt file, I'm just going to use one simple example of this. Um, Some publishers or some sites are actually resellers of other people's inventory, right? If they were honest, they would mark that line as a reseller. 
But if they're not honest, which pretty much all the fraudsters are, uh, they would uh, alter that to say direct. And that's because they want to capture some of the budgets that the advertisers have said, we only want to buy from direct sources, right? So it's as simple as changing the text in the ads.txt file to lie and commit more fraud. So in fact, instead of helping to reduce fraud, ads.txt has provided the cover for more fraudsters to commit more fraud and make it appear to be fine. So that's what we've been saying. And, and dark pooling simply means one publisher is selling under the guise of another publisher, right? They're pooling their inventory together. So just like you were mixing in, um, you know, low-rated bonds with high-rated bonds and then selling the whole lot to the, to the marketer, this is exactly what's happening. Dark pooling means these are undisclosed pooling of inventory to be sold to marketers. So it's happening at large scale. And because it looks like they have ads.txt, so the marketers just assume it's fine, right? So that's how even more of this form of fraud is getting through instead of less. So in fact, it's the opposite of what the IAB thought it was going to do. Crazy. So I've got to ask, though, in the US at least, uh, do you get uh, dec a decent voice, a hearing from the industry trade and business press around this? You would think to a journalist that this sort of stuff is is gold. Do you get traction? Are you covered with this with this with your position? No, obviously most of the trade press they get donations from all the ad tech companies, right? So they definitely don't want to have me anywhere on their publication. Uh, the trade associations all hate my guts, and that's totally fine, right? They have their own vested interest to protect, which is keep their members happy so that they keep paying their membership dues, right? So they literally don't want to hear this. They want, they want to keep uh, the, their members away from me and, so that they don't hear this message. And in fact, uh, they've been publicly attacking me, which is fine too. Uh, you know, they have to do what they have to do. But hopefully, as more marketers start to assess their own programs, uh, they'll see that I've been right all along. There's lots of lots of soul searching and work being done in overhauling audience and media measurement, Augustine. How do you see this all playing out in the next 12 months and what impact is the cookie apocalypse going to have on measurement? Well, a lot of companies are deathly afraid of the cookie apocalypse, right? They're saying that, oh, if we don't have cookies, we can't do measurement. But think about it this way. Marketers don't need to know who bought their soap or soda, right? They don't need to know the individual person or the device that ended up buying. They just need to know that someone who was exposed to an ad, right, who was shown an ad, ended up doing um, the desired action, right, the business outcome, right, buying something more or whatever. So in this case, even without individual level cookies or device identifiers, marketers can go back to what I would consider more basic blocking and tackling, right? We've always been able to do marketing attribution, advertising attribution, say, for example, with TV advertising and, and uh, magazine advertising, right? That, those never involved cookies in the past. So all of the stuff that have been built on top of third-party cookies and cross-media attribution, all that kind of stuff, is a figment that ad tech companies have sold to marketers. So even when third-party cookies go away, uh, the marketers should understand that they should continue doing their brand lift studies. They should continue doing incremental sales studies that are not dependent on these ad tech services that tell them how well it worked, right? Because remember, we just said in the past that the attribution platforms could be easily tricked by the fraudsters if they wanted to. 
So in those cases, even with third-party cookies, the attribution may not be as accurate. But as long as the marketer kind of refocuses on incrementality, right? Did their digital marketing drive incremental sales that would not have happened in the absence of the digital marketing? Then they're on the right track. They will be less dependent on any form of measurement that depends on third-party cookies, right? Because they just need to know that people did more stuff uh, as a result of being exposed to the ads. Augustine, there's also a ton of regulatory stuff going on uh, around the world right now, wrapped up in antitrust and privacy. Uh, what's your take on that? How does this all play out in terms of privacy uh, and the implications for how digital advertising and, and, and marketing on the online works? 60 seconds, how does it all play out? Privacy regulations are a great thing. Uh, it doesn't actually enforce anything in the marketplace, but it raises awareness among consumers that their private personal information is being harvested and sold by ad tech companies. Okay, so that's one thing. But the enforcement of the privacy regulations is actually causing more of the ad tech companies to actually have to do something proper. The enforcement of privacy regulations is causing ad tech companies to have to do something proper, like get consent before they collect uh, people's information. Now, marketers might be worried that that means there's less targeting information, but if they understood that the targeting that was based on data collected and inferred insights on consumers who didn't give permission isn't good anyway, they're not losing any effectiveness in their digital marketing programs. Now, let me get to one example in the EU that we've seen so far. GDPR is requiring ad tech companies and marketers to gather consent, right, GDPR consent. And there have been consent management platforms deployed on sites that say, do you give consent for us to collect your information, set a cookie, uh, and retarget you, so on and so forth. What I've seen in terms of the fraud is that the bots are now faking the consent. So how many humans would give consent to being tracked? Not that many, right? Even if there are some, there's still not that many. However, the bot's job is to actually cause the ads to load. So they have to give consent in order to do their job. So in the past, in the data, what we've seen are the bots faking the consent strings so that they can cause the ad to load. So now for marketers doing advertising in the EU, the number of users that have consented to GDPR tracking and the use of their data for ad serving purposes um, is a higher proportion that are bots than are humans, right? So if you're still doing programmatic in the EU, you're ending up showing more ads to bots that have given consent than humans that have given consent. So the enforcement of privacy regulations is actually causing a positive change in digital marketing. Yeah, amazing. Well, Gaston Fu, fascinating conversation. I suspect you have triggered a lot of uh, interest in, in the Australian market and we may have to get you back on with some Australian players to work through and debate this because I'm sure there's some, some very different viewpoints. So we'll get you back. Thanks for joining, Augustine. Thanks, Paul. Look forward to talking with you again. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Listener.